0: Live from the Hills of Judea, is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Arya Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel.
1: Shalom, shalom. Are you with me? Can you hear me? I can't see any of you. I'm just trusting that we're together. Please, God, I'm, I'm at the farm. I wasn't able to get out, so I'm hoping the reception holds up. But I'm starting to see some of you now. Um, it's good to see all of you. I was deliberating about whether to follow through with this fellowship. As something is going around in Judea, it seems like everyone is uh, sick. As I'm sure the case uh, in many places in the world, it's the winter right now. We're in the heart of it. And uh, kindergartens are the epicenter of it all. And when you have two kids in kindergarten daycare like we do, it's inevitable that you're going to get it. I mean, these kids are like sneezing directly into each other's faces, eating out of each other's hands. It's adorable, but it's also a Petri dish. Anyways, our family has been shut down this week, and it's starting, I think, to hit me too uh, pretty hard. But anyways, a tab of this encouragement, I decided to down some caffeine, give it a go, and uh, and honestly, looking at your faces, it's worth it just to see all of you. Um, I hope and pray that I bring value to you as well, but you certainly do for me, just by virtue of the fact that you are you. Anyways, you're just an encouragement, and you're a support, and I can't even tell you thank you. Uh, now, before I take off and start this totally different direction than we normally do of the fellowship, at least for me, um, allow me the great honor of introducing my best friend, my Rebbe Jeremy, to share with you. Jeremy, you are up. Oh, great.
0: Wow. I get right off, right off the bat. I'm already right on. Off I bat. love
1: that. Thank you,
0: Ed. That really made me feel good that you clapped like that. That really made me feel wanted here. I can't tell you how happy I'm to see all of your faces. I see there's like all these friends that I haven't seen in person in so long, like Rusty and Aaron. I just so happy you guys are together. We get to hang out here in person. (laughs) Cal and Ardell, just love you guys. I can't tell you how wonderful it is that we get to gather here every week and that we're going through all of this together. And I, I wrote it just now on the chat, but I really do believe that this fellowship was formed in the heart of the most insane global pandemic the world has ever known. And it was the first time that the whole world was unified in a consciousness, like everyone, everywhere was obsessed with Corona. And we were all isolated and Ari and I felt this need to just broadcast the message. And all of a sudden a fellowship was being born. It's been growing and it's continuously growing. But I believe that all of this was brought into existence for the time that we're in now, and that all of us are making um, history. We are all a part of this history that's unfolding in Israel of what's destined to be here, and this living example of what could be in the world. And I just know that as this fellowship continues to grow and spread its influence, um, it's just a light from Zion that's reaching over 50 countries. And in some ways, the people that come here, it's like, 200 people from all over the world, families are gathering together and your faces that we see every week are the heart and soul. It allows us to be a true community and it is beyond, uh, there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. So like what more could we ask for on this uh, faith walk than to be brought together in such a time as this? And so um, I what I want to do today is I want to go deep into the Tanakh. I actually want to give over a, like a Bible study, like a study in the prophets of Israel. And I've been saying over and over again that Israel has to bring God into this conversation. You know, um, I haven't done social media in six years. Since moving out to the farm, I sort of wanted to go off the radar. And then about a month into the war, all of these lies were being said about Israel and all these things were happening. And I said, you know what? I need to like jump in the ring and like start broadcasting more, making more short videos, just getting the truth out of it. Just as much as I can to broadcast. And um, what I see is that everyone's talking about all these things, but no one's talking about what matters most. Everyone's talking about security and politics and Biden administration and the State Department and UNRWA and all of this stuff that's around the main issue. And what is the main issue? It's the littlest of all words, but it's the word that means everything. And we're talking about God. We have to bring God into the conversation about what's happening in Israel. And more than just talking about God, we need to understand what's at the crux of this war, what's actually at the heart of Israel what is this process of shivatzion of this return of the jewish people to zion what is this actually all about and so the way to really like bring it to light is to go deep into a bible study and so first i would absolutely encourage everyone that's here live that's listening to this later to take notes bring out your tanakh mark it in your tanakh so you can reference it later this in my opinion is the axis upon which everything spins in the entire world. And so let's open up to Ezekiel chapter 36. Start with verse 17 through 19. And here's what it says. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And so, so many people, when the Jewish people were in exile, they said, okay, the Jews are gone. They're lost. God has forsaken them for whatever theological reason that they had. They're just a cursed people because look at them. They're scattered around the world. They're persecuted. They're being judged by God. Obviously God has left them for someone else or God doesn't exist at all, but the Jews, they're done. It's over for them. And that really was the story. There are consequences. There's a covenantal relationship that we have with God that if we don't act according to his ways in the Holy land, the Holy Land cannot handle unholiness and it will spit us out. And that is the last 2000 years of Jewish existence. Now there's another promise in the Bible. It says that the Jewish people will always remain. An eternal covenant is an eternal covenant. But the last thing you would want to do to an eternal people is scatter them around the world with no common culture, no common language, no phones, no faxes, no internet, no way to communicate with each other. It's like you want to erase a people from the world bring them out of their land, scatter them across the world, and in a few generations, they'll be gone, as are every single one of the ancient peoples of the Bible. The Jews, we are the only ancient people alive today. So God made an eternal covenant at that time. All of the peoples of the Bible are lost. Think about that. It's really remarkable. The Canaanites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Babylonians, the Persians, The I mean, even the Egyptians, they're not the Egyptians of old. They're pharaohs with different gods and different people. Arabs now live in Egypt, and they're not the Egyptians of old. All of the ancient peoples and all their civilizations are all gone, but the Jews were promised they're going to be scattered around the world, but they're going to be eternal. And then what happens? Let's go to the next verses in Ezekiel. 36. Verse 20 and 22. When they come to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this. For your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So now, this is stage two. A time is going to come in history where God sees that the scattering of the people of Israel is, in Hebrew, a chilul Hashem, a this profanes God's name. Now, that's a really, that's a that's not a good word in English. What does the word profane really mean? Chilul Hashem is the word in Hebrew. What does the word Chilul Hashem mean? Halal means empty. So what is the Chilul Hashem? It is an emptying of God from the world. Because the nations look at Israel and they're like, that's the chosen people? That's God's chosen people? That doesn't look like a chosen people. Their God is either very weak or their God doesn't exist. And it emptied God's name from the world. And that was a Chilul Hashem. And God said, I created this entire universe, and I don't do this right now for you, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. That God ultimately created this entire world for the ultimate revelation. And right now, Israel in the exile is a desecration of God's name. It empties him from the world. When you think about the Nazis in the last generation, It wasn't just that the Nazis were throwing us into gas chambers, but it was as they were kicking us in that they would say, where's your God, Jews? Where's your God now? If he's so strong, why doesn't he save you? And then God said, a time is going to come. The Nazis will be gone and Israel will be back in their land. And that will be the ultimate sanctification of God's name. So let's continue Ezekiel 36, verses 23 to 25. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. So God is now going to sanctify his name. He's going to bring his presence back into the world. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am sanctified in your uh, in, in you before their eyes for I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So now let's set up this thing so we can actually understand what is happening in Israel. God chose a singular family, one people that came out of Jacob, B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. And he said, I'm going to put my name, the children of Israel, I am the God of Israel. And I'm going to give them the land of Israel. And the living testimony of God's truth, of God's sovereignty, will be expressed when against all odds the people of Israel return to the land of Israel. And that will be a kiddush Hashem. That will be a sanctification of God's name. That will be filling the world with a God consciousness, because how did all these prophecies possibly come true while the Jews are living in Israel? You can't deny it. So then now let's look. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 33 and to 36. So thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your contaminations and I will enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt and the desolate land shall be tilled. And instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by, so they will say, this Land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around, you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. That's what this is all about. That's why when people come to the Arugot farm and they see the desolate, barren, forgotten mountains of King David, and all of a sudden a Garden of Eden-like oasis is emerging in the desert mountains with the most spectacular views and a house of prayer in the place where prayers were brought into the world. And they see like, that's just a miracle. And what that is, is exactly that. It is a miracle. And what's happening here, we really need to get like, this is what the war in Israel is all about in every way. That's the axis of the war. The entire world history has been spinning around this one idea, this one concept that the nations will know that Hashem is God. On that day, he will be one and his name will be one. How will the nations know? When the promise the foundational covenant with Abraham, that he promised this land to his children. When Israel becomes sovereign in the land given to them, that is the testimony. God chose a particular people. He gave them a particular land. Israel is the only people that can make that claim. Everyone can claim an indigenous rights to a land. I mean, people could just Theoretically, imagine they find an ancient tribe in Africa and they're actually the Romans that were exiled 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And they walk up to the Vatican and they're like, We were the indigenous people of Rome. We demand Rome back. And the Vatican would be like, What? (laughs) Every land was taken at some point from someone. That's not Israel's claim. It's not that this was our indigenous homeland. This was the land that God gave us as an eternal covenant. And we are here because. God gave the land to the people of Israel and he established his covenant with them through this particular land. And our covenant is to build a society, to build a country that's so beautiful, it is worthy of being the resting place for his presence in the world. So in that way, Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel is the international testimony of the sovereignty of the living God of Israel. Now, what we need to understand is that all of the forces that are aligning up against Israel it's all a setup it's all a setup it's a gift that Israel is about to give the world as Israel's greatest ally America is now turning on her the odds are being stacked against us and soon we will be given we will be up against insurmountable challenges that no reason or logic will be able to explain How Israel will ever be able to overcome all of the challenges? The Hamas and the Hezbollah and Iran and America is now turning on them and they're left alone. Only six million Jews surrounded by over a billion Muslims that want to throw them into the sea. No one's siding with them. They're all alone. Just know, evil's primary purpose is to deny the existence of God if we really understand that evil isn't about killing or murder or the transgender agenda, that's not really what evil is. Evil's raison d'etre is to deny the existence of God. And then that can manifest itself in different sort of political movements, meaning a transgender person, you sort of have to be compassionate for them. They're so confused. But the political engine, the powers behind that movement, those are anti-God movements, the people that are working to take the land away from Israel. It's all a war against the existence of God because the essential role of evil is to convince the world that there is no right or wrong. There is no good and evil. There is no truth because there is no God. And that's why Zechariah chapter 8 says This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. It is the living testimony of the living God of Israel. Period. Anyone that comes against the Jews in the land of Israel are coming against the living testimony of the living God. That's what this is about. So when you draw a line in the sand, it's very clear. You either stand with the people of Israel that have a God-given right to the land of Israel to be a testimony of the living God of Israel, or you stand against us. And if any war against the people of Israel is a war against the God of Israel, but you know what? God will be revealed whether the enemy likes it or not. In this time in history, the stage is being set. For those that have emunah, it's like exciting. It's kind of like, okay, how is this thing going to unfold? For those that don't have emunah, for those that are just like, I don't know, a lot of instability in the world, get ready because it's going to get rocky. It's going to be a roller coaster of a ride. But if you know that God is the one that's actually driving the bus you don't need to be the paranoid passenger being like, how are we going to get to the end of our destination? Oh, God is riding the bus. He's the driver. Everything is okay. We are being set up for David against Goliath. We're being set up for the Maccabees against Alexander the Great. To understand the descendants of Alexander the Great? What a group of priests and this like little tribe in Judea are going to overthrow and beat the Greek empire? That's a Kiddush Hashem. We're going to sanctify the temple in Jerusalem and the fire is going to go and light up the world. So that's what's about to happen now. And when we realize that that's actually what this war is about, we are the proof text. We are the living testimony. And so when we understand that, we cannot not bring God into this conversation because everything that's happening in Israel, all of it is for that purpose that God's name will be one and he will be one and the truth will be revealed and people will know uh there's good there's bad there's evil there's lies all of that th- they're trying to convince you that there's no such thing as a boy and a girl right now they're actually that's a war against the truth that movement that's trying so hard to break our brains And say, There is no truth. Whatever I say is true. Whatever I believe is true. I'm going to form this little idol and I believe that that's God. That's what's happening here. And Israel is coming to shatter all the idols and bring us to a new consciousness where the knowledge of God will cover the world like water covers the sea. How is that going to happen? Because Israel is going to be a living testimony. And so, with that, as we watch the news and we see the unfolding destiny of Israel, We just need to know, understand that what's actually happening here is God is preparing Israel to represent, to represent him in the world. And so it's a process because we are not ready yet. The Jewish people in Israel, we're getting much better. This war has built us into a new people right now. And we are slowly getting, our shoulders are getting broader to carry the responsibility of actually being the people chosen to carry the yoke of heaven in the world. That's our responsibility to be the ones that are carrying God's name that rests on our shoulders. And so with that, um, I want to pass it over to Ari because people keep on saying, Jeremy, you want to bring God back into the conversation? What does that really mean? That's what I just said now. That's what I mean. That's what I want people to know that this whole war, everything that's happening is all about bringing God's light and testimony into the world and to fight the essence of evil. The essence of evil is to just deny the very existence of God. And Israel is the living proof that God is alive and well. And so they hate us, (laughs) but we're going to win because we are good and they are All right. Thank you, friends. I hope that that was a good Bible study. Ari, we can't hear you.
1: Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great, great, great. That was an excellent Bible study. And just your last words. First of all, I didn't know that you were going to say what you said, and it really unbelievably fits into my message that I want to share right now. But also, just your last words: "They are evil and we are good." That is such a mind-altering, um, politically incorrect statement. How could you say, "Well, they believe that they're good and you believe that you're evil, and everybody believes that their own thing"? No, there is a truth in the world, and that's part of what it means when the prophet says, "Atem die. We are God's. We are God's uh, testimony. We are His testimony to the world. <clears throat> Anyways. So I want to share this because as you as all of you know, you know, since the war broke out, it's rare that I leave the farm at night. Without going into details, you know, since October 7th, I've left my family at home without me on the mountain, maybe twice. Because if I do, it's important to coordinate with the army and increase patrols and guarding and security and whatever. Um, if I'm gonna leave, it's gonna be for a very good reason. But this week I'm planning to leave the mountain for a reason that I think is very important. Uh, I I hope it's very important because it's a real trip that I'm taking. It's not just to Jerusalem, which is, you know, 40 minutes away. It's to Tel Aviv. And the reason that I am going is that I was asked to speak to a group of primarily liberal college students from America that are here in Israel. And as far as I understand, I would be their sole representation of the religious Zionist perspective, speaking on the topic called a vision for the future state of Israel. So they'll be hearing from the two state solution types. They'll be hearing from the other side altogether, from the jihadist type, um, about why Israel shouldn't exist at all. But I'm the only one voice in which there's any chance that they'll be hearing anything about Hashem. And that's a responsibility that uh, that I couldn't turn down. And it used to be that if I was ever asked to speak to a group, Jeremy knows this about me. I received it like it was a divine directive straight from Hashem that I could not say no to. It was like The equivalent of being asked to be the 10th person in a minion, you know, in a prayer quorum, you you just don't say no to that. But as my life situation has shifted, there are times that I've determined that I really needed to say no, such as this situation, exactly where I would be asked to take an hour and a half drive to Tel Aviv, give a speech, drive an hour and a half back, all while leaving my family alone on the mountain during wartime at a time that I'm trying to recover from being sick. So why did I say yes? Yes. The reason I said yes was not only because of how important this was for the group, that alone may not have tipped the scales. The reason I said yes was because of how important crafting and articulating this message is, not only for them, but even more so because of how important it is for me. Because I believe that crafting this speech, immersing myself on this topic and this issue is exactly what I needed for what what I need right now for myself on my own journey, because it's easy for me you know, to declare that the absolute devastation of northern Gaza, that's how it looks, that's how Tehran should have looked on October 8th. You guys know how how I believe this. It's easy that I should say that we should have leveled Gaza and immediately started resettling it. Because I also believe that's true, not only for reasons of justice, but also just recognition that the only true victory in this region and arguably anywhere in the world is the acquisition of the territory that was occupied by your enemy, And even better, from which they launched their attack against you. So we could talk about this stuff, you know, but really, to what end? That's the question, you know, to what end? What are we really doing all of this for? What are we fighting for? Our enemy is such evil incarnate that it's just so easy to to exclusively focus on them and their evil without asking ourselves what we're proactively trying to build. What are we trying to do? You know, what's our greater vision here? And so it's an intimidating question, but it's exactly what, what we need to be asking ourselves. At least that's how I feel for me. That's, that's what I feel like I need to be asking myself. And so that's what I wanted to discuss together on this fellowship. And I feel fortunate that I feel so close to all of you because um, that closeness, that friendship, as Tabitha encouraged me today, it allows me to broach a subject that I don't yet necessarily have all the answers to, that I haven't figured everything out quite yet. And it allows us to sort of figure it out together. I'm so eager to hear your thoughts and hear from all of you, which I actually think is quite beautiful, because one of the areas that um, of, of the growth and the evolution of the future state of Israel is that it will no longer be a place where Jews you know, run away from persecution. And it's not no longer a place to merely be a place of refuge from the wrath and hatred of the nations, right? We saw how far that paradigm got us on October 7th. On the contrary, Israel will be a light of godliness and inspiration and morality for the entire world, for all the nations. And so there's something beautiful about us sharing and discussing this vision together, of working on it together, of sort of polishing it and bouncing our ideas off of each other. Also, I'm so eager to hear from all of you because I'll tell you, right now in Israel, it feels like we're at a breaking point. It actually feels like we're beyond a breaking point. We're facing a genocidal jihadi Nazi-like enemy in Hamas and in Gaza. But we know, of course, that Hamas is just one singular, relatively small tentacle of the octopus of the global jihad, led by Iran, whose paramount vision in their world and in their life is to wipe Israel off the map. You know, sometimes I think that here in Israel, we intentionally don't zoom out from Hamas too often, because subconsciously we recognize that the sheer magnitude and size of the enemy That we are facing that is bent on our destruction is just so great that if we gave it too much thought, we would just throw in the towel and give up hope. At least our current leadership would. You know, here's a picture of a map of the Middle East, right? Tabitha, could you put that up? The green are the Arab countries, and the red sliver there, that's Israel. How can anyone look at this map and still come away with the tired? and ridiculous narrative that Israel's the bully and Hamas is the underdog. It's it's just so ridiculous and insane, and it's just getting old. You know, the global jihad is an enemy possibly greater than we've ever faced in history, possibly. Because we also have, right now, America. And I know that this is gonna get me in trouble with Jeremy's mother. She hates it when I talk about this. And I should say she's right. I should say that it's the current American administration I really believe it's not the majority of the American people, but it doesn't really matter because on the ground in real time, America as a nation is becoming more acrimonious from the, from the government I'm saying, more adversarial, more hateful and more existentially dangerous to Israel every single day. Now I'm not even gonna go into giving a comprehensive list because by that point it would take up the entire fellowship, but I'll just share a couple of things that they've done you know, just over the past week, okay? such as sanctions, you know, I grew up believing that sanctions were a measure taken against other countries in order to make them suffer. It was a short of war, but it was in order to make other countries that were bad, evil countries yield to America's will, which was good. Like, this is how I always saw it, like, like Iran or Afghanistan or Bosnia Herzegovina or whatever. You know, it was a severe economic and political measure taken against an enemy nation that probably deserved it. Or that's how I believed growing up, because I grew up believing that America was fundamentally a force of goodness in the world. And I actually have to believe that then it was much more so than it is now. I'm 44, right? When I was a kid, it was much more so. So if a country was sanctioned, good, good. They probably deserved it. Never did I imagine that you would sanction Shalom Zicherman on a Sunday morning or Yino Levi, that America would sanction individual people, Jews. Living in Judea and Samaria, I've never heard of such a thing before. But alas, they are. They are. You know, and it seems like they're only getting started. Can I just
0: add one more idea to that? Yes. These are people that they've not been charged with any crime in Israel. They've had no day in court. Never mind being charged. There's just no proof of any wrongdoings of these people. And the American administration has targeted uh, farmers in Judea and Samaria. Simple people and right now they can't pull money out of their bank account to buy groceries in the store. What and of all of the things America could be doing with their time, they remove the sanctions from the Iranian regime and they're putting sanctions on a farmer in Judea without any trial. It is absolutely insanity.
1: Yeah. And and it looks like they're only getting started. You know, reports are coming in that they're soon going to begin sanctioning soldiers that serve in Judea and Samaria. And if these reports are true, then soldiers in the Israeli army will be personally sanctioned, have their Israeli bank accounts shut down, and assets frozen by order of the United States government, all for the crime of defending and protecting their fellow Jews from the jihadi terrorists that vastly outnumber them in their indigenous homeland. It's so crazy. You know, it's so important to the Biden administration to create this blatantly false and corrupt moral equivalency in Israel's battle with Hamas that they needed to find a villain. They needed to find dangerous settler extremists to balance out the dangerous Hamas extremists. And who did they find? The Jews of Judea. You know, who since October 7th, there have been zero attacks carried out against Arabs. Zero. But that doesn't matter because he found the... He found the extremists on both sides that he so badly needs to to assuage the 40,000 Arab voters in Michigan that he feels that he needs for his reelect efforts. So there's that, you know, and then just yesterday and another small example, just a little example of the most recent thing um, of of U.S. abuse. The United States government demanded that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken meet privately with IDF chief Percy Halevi. Right. You see, the administration, they're very familiar with the top brass of the IDF, and they've identified the weakest links in the government and the military establishment. They've identified the most ideologically vulnerable or morally compromisable and bribable ministers, and they are seeking to capitalize on their vulnerability to navigate them, push them away from the prime minister, isolate them from the war cabinets and other ministers to, you know, inflict their will on the entire country. It is so it, it's so um, it's an, it's the work of an adversary that isn't even trying to hide it anymore. And so they demanded that Blinken meet with Uh, You know, here's a here's a picture. You know, isolated and alone. It's it's such an aggressive, insulting demand. It's like the disrespect is getting worse and worse. And the question is, how much the nation of Israel is willing to take? Because, like I said, it feels that we're past our breaking point. Maybe the um, government hasn't reached it yet. But the nation has, the nation is past our breaking point. I'm telling you, it's not only showing up in the polls, but I talk to people. No one has anything good to say about America right now. There are people that say we have no choice but to, you know, take it on the chin because we need America. So we need to endure the humiliation and the disrespect that they're pouring out on us. But no one has anything good to say about America. You know, I've been envisioning, at least nobody I've spoken to, maybe there are people that, that do, that like this sort of thing. Um, But, uh, you know, I've been I've sort of been envisioning the nation much like the children of Israel in the Ha'elah Valley. Emek approximately 3,064 years ago, if my math is right. When just like Jeremy said, you know, when Goliath stood in the valley, towering over the largest of the Israelite soldiers, mocking and insulting the nation of Israel and the God of Israel, and no one stood up to him. And by the way, I don't think that they were cowards right? They were standing there as an army of Jewish soldiers, sword and shield, willing to fight and willing to die. I think, they just, I think they just didn't know where to start. They didn't know how to go about it. If anyone accepted Goliath's challenge and they lost, which seemed inevitable in a one-on-one battle, then the entire nation would suffer the slavery of, of the Philistines and the horrific way in, the, in which that would look. And I think they just didn't see a practical, realistic pragmatic way out of this one, and so no one rose to the occasion. You know, their leadership under Saul was less than inspiring, and the parallels, the parallels, my friends, between that moment in history and the one in which we find ourselves right now are overwhelming. I'm not the only one to see it. You know, I'm not the only one to see the the parallels between King Saul and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, not to mention, by the way, his very name, Benjamin, an allusion to the fact that Saul came from the very tribe. You know, they were both leaders who were not bad people. I really believe they were both leaders who truly cared for their land and cared for their nation. Because that you can't say that about every leader. We've had leaders that I don't believe cared about the Jewish people at all or Israel at all. But but I believe that Netanyahu does and also King Saul, of course, he did also. But there were also leaders who were not equipped with the character and the leadership and the faith to truly rise to the occasion and answer the call and, uh, and King David, he answered the calling. He answered the calling without thinking twice. And he was so eager to simply put an end to the gross desecration of God's name and the humiliating mockery of the people of Israel. It took David to be so zealous and so fearless to be able to have the, the expansive state of mind to realize that he didn't need to play by Goliath's rules. He didn't need to adhere to some sort of fictitious international law. Goliath is saying it's a sword, you have to take a sword to the battle. It it took David uh, to realize that the only thing we needed to defeat this fierce adversary was not outside of himself. The answer to the seemingly insurmountable challenge the Jewish people were facing was in his own heart. It was in in the prism through which he was viewing the entire world. David knew that Hashem was with him. He didn't believe it, he knew it. And when you know Hashem is with you, when you know that the darkness and the pain and the challenge of your life are not happening to you, as we always say, but for you, then it changes everything. Your eyes become illuminated with the the light of Hashem and the solution. So simple, so achievable, is right at your fingertips. It's been there the whole time. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, this prolific author, he wrote an entire book about it. You know, about how David, merely by viewing the challenge differently, entered the battle having won. Before it even began, you know, a sharpshooter versus a swordsman, Goliath never stood a chance. And so who was the old leader? Who was the old leader stuck in his limited, constricted paradigm of seeing the world? It was Saul. It was King Saul. And the truth is, as we know, that by this point, he had already lost his kingship. At the orders of Hashem, the prophet Samuel had already ripped away the kingship from Saul and anointed David. And why? Why did Saul lose the kingship? Now, this isn't just a historical review, okay? because we could just read it in a a dry, historic way. But this is important here because I think we're going through a parallel journey right now, a journey from the kingdom of Saul to the kingdom of David. And by understanding what happened then, we can understand what needs to happen now, what's happening essentially. And so we see it in detail. You can read it inside, you know, the entire sequence of events that effectively ended Saul's true kingship of Israel it's in the chapter 15 of the first book of Samuel. So Saul is commanded by Samuel, who is commanded by Hashem to wipe, wipe out Amalek completely. Everyone, men, women, children, animals, possession, everything needed to be burnt and destroyed, everything. And familiarly, his top brass convinced him other- otherwise. Right? They, while the reasons have changed from then to now, the fact that the entire political and military leadership pressured him not to, well, that definitely strikes a guy, rings a bell. It's, it's familiar. Right? And he listened to them, and he rationalized it to himself that he listened to them. And so, and then Samuel arrives and demands to know why Saul didn't adhere to his words. Let's look inside. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "'Blessed be you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord.'" Right Off the bat, it's almost like, thou doth protest too much. Anyways, and Samuel said, "'What is the meaning then of this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear?' And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, but the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have completely destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stay, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, When you were little in your own sight, were you not made the chief of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a journey and said, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the booty, and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Indeed, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have completely destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the booty, sheep and oxen, the best of the devoted property to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And therefore, I beg you, pardon my sin, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it tore And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now I wanted to actually read this inside because it's important to look closely at the words of Samuel to see what really happened here. Because it's conventional wisdom that Saul lost the kingship because he didn't wipe out Amalek. But that isn't true. A very pivotal conversation happened there which revealed why Saul really lost the kingship. Notice the repetition of the words, but the people, right? But the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, right? But the people took the booty of the Lord. It was only after Saul's continual shirking of the blame, it was only after Saul's constant unwillingness to take responsibility for his sin, only then was the kingship ripped ripped away from him. It's actually reminiscent of the great original sin, right, of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And what is the conventional reason as to why? Ask any each schoolchild, right? Because they ate from the tree of knowledge and they were commanded not to. That is why most people believe they were thrown out of the garden. But if you look closely, you see that they were not expelled from the garden immediately after eating from the tree. There was a conversation that happened there. They were only expelled after Hashem asked Adam why all of a sudden he was covered up and shivering and hiding in the bushes. Right again, let's look inside. And he said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you not that you should not eat? And the man said and Adam said The woman who you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree and I ate. There. That's it. That's when they were thrown out of the garden. When Adam, like Saul, or perhaps I should say that uh, you know Saul like Adam refused to take ownership, refused to take responsibility. It's really interesting. This theme can be tracked through all of Tanakh And through all of Jewish history, I mean, most of us were probably raised learning the virtue of taking responsibility for our actions. But that was just, you know, I guess one of many values. But there's something about this quality, this virtue of taking responsibility that is much more than just any other sort of biblical value. There's something about it that is so central and critical uh, to true leadership And, and, you know, and so critical for all of redemption. The whole world hinges upon it. And that's why King David and his descendants have the leadership qualities and the character and the strength to be leaders of Israel, not only in the past, but in the future, to usher in the final redemption. Because King David was a man of truth, a man that took responsibility, a man that owned it. We see after King David's seemingly egregious sin against Uriah the Hittite with Bathsheba. Um, He's castigated by Natan the prophet, and here's what he said. And David said to Natan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Natan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Immediately, he takes a responsibility, immediately, immediately he owns it. And immediately then, almost like reflexively, Natan says, Hashem has put away, you, you shall not die for that sin. We see, you know, further ownership of his sins and recognition of his uh, sins in the book of Psalms. Right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is Psalm 51. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you have proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. It goes on. That's uh, verses one through six. So here we are. It feels now that we are like we're in the fields of the valley of Hailah and we're being taunted by Goliath. But who is Goliath? Right? Is Goliath is it Hamas? Is Goliath Iran? Is Goliath America? Is Goliath the West? We have so many powerful adversaries. So who's Goliath? I've come to believe that they are all Goliath. We're being called upon to slay all the Goliaths who are standing against us. Not slay them like we need to kill them. Slay the fear in our own hearts, right? All the Goliaths who tower over us and mock us. We're being called to defeat all the Goliaths in our lives. And, you know, as we say with King David, the key to slaying Goliath is not by garnering alliances with the Parasites or begging the Girgashites for weapons and chariots. The key to defeating, to defeating Goliath was taking responsibility and stepping up to the plate with faith and courage. And that is the reason that I broached this subject. The vision of the future state of Israel is because that is the root of it all. To usher in the Messianic era and envision the future state of Israel, we need to understand that it's all established upon the foundation of taking responsibility. Not only for ourselves, but really for the entire world. We can look at America and see their perfidious betrayal. We can see the threats to cut off our weapons in the midst of a war for our survival. They're threatening to cut off our weapons and our supplies. And we we see their threats of not using their veto to defend us in the United Nations. We see their sanctions against our citizens. We see their moral equivocations between... The most compassionate army in the world, right? Arguably, the history of the world against the most evil, and le- le- we can legitimately see all these things and feel like victims. We can look at the the betrayal by the world superpower of America, who is supposed to be our friends, and we could feel just helpless in the face of it all, or, or we can take responsibility. We can recognize that we played a very significant role in creating this toxic codependent relationship with america we can recognize that we bear responsibility for what our relationship with the us has become how how do we bear responsibility by having put our faith in them by believing that without their friendship without their support without their largesse we simply couldn't exist you know some people some people say that when you get married you should feel that you just simply wouldn't be able to live without the other person but no that's a recipe for disaster when two people come together in a union, when two people that are emotionally self-sufficient come together, they can forge a bond in which they can be even stronger and even happier together. But their happiness should not be dependent on one another. right? The Saul-like leadership of Israel really believed, right? really believes, really believes right now that without America, we'd be lost. That without America, we couldn't survive. But the Israel of King David would immediately put an end to those illusions, would immediately shatter the idol of America. The King David leader would issue an executive order that would never again accept one dollar of America's poisonous foreign aid, that Israel can go at it without America's foreign aid, and that that, uh, America really should open their eyes and recognize the obvious truth that Israel is on the front lines of the global jihad, of that battle that has its crosshairs on America, that if America realizes that and they went and they want to supply Israel with weapons because it's in their critical strategic interests then fine but it would not be foreign aid it would rather be a a military expenditure which has no strings attached right Israel uses the weapons as we see fit as we need to use to fight this war and have victory in this war Israel would clearly state that we are no longer in need of America's precision precision tactical weapons, right? We aren't fighting a war in the Middle West. We're fighting a war in the Middle East. And we are more than capable of making do with what we have. We need America for nothing. On the other hand, we can recognize that our old friends in America, they actually need our help now more than ever before. We can look at them and see that they are coming apart at the seams, that they're being torn apart with hate over the most insane and morally corrupt issues imaginable. Right? Transgenderism and sexual deviance and immorality and, and just like the superficiality of racial divisions is just ripping them apart. It's really sad to see. You know, we we can be a voice of light and guidance and godliness there. We're so used to positioning ourselves as the victims that we literally don't know what else to do. Imagine that instead of spending tens of millions of dollars on an ad like this, which will be played at the Super Bowl. Tony. Mom,
0: what's that?
1: Nothing. Just get in the car. Let's go. Who did that? Come on. Right now.
0: In. Get in. Right now. Let's go. Did you paint it or something? Move it. Seatbelt on right now. Put your seatbelt on.
1: that's aimed at appealing to the tender mercies of the Gentiles to have compassion on the poor, helpless victim Jews, that this ad actually created, a, a, a paid for by the state of Israel. Look at this one. <laughs>
0: I hear you. Can I tell you my opinion about these ads?
1: Yes, but I'm afraid that I'm going to get cut off again and I really want it. But yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. You're in.
0: Go, go. Your reception has been pretty good now. You can breathe. You can speak slow. It's all good. But my opinion is, I don't know how many millions of dollars were paid to buy these ads in the Super Bowl. But I would like to take that money and buy more bullets to go get more terrorists. I think, what is it are wasting our time? Putting up ads on the Super Bowl to talk about the, let's go get our hostages back. Let's go and crush the jihad and save our hostages. Take all of that money and buy more bullets. That's what I think.
1: Okay, but if we're going to spend the money on ideas and on trying to appeal to the American people, how about instead of that, we played a Torah teaching during the Super Bowl from Tehillah Gimpel. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Or, or you know, instead that's of a that, good idea. Yes. Yeah, Every super of that, Bowl we,
0: audience needs to have a class from Tahila. I agree with that.
1: <laughs> I agree. And, or you know, instead of that, we played this final message, given but from the holy lips of Ori Mordechai Shani of blessed memory, who was killed on October seventh. He was killed in this fierce heroic battle against Hamas, a battle which which he could have fled from, but he selflessly charged into slaying, by all reports, tens of Hamas terrorists. And saving untold number of Jewish
0: lives. But, anyways, we imagine playing this What is <laughs> <laughs> יציפו אותנו. אך תאו לכם, ערבי ישראל, שהטוב ינצח. תמיד הטוב נצח. טוב נצח עם ארבעת המלאכים. טוב נצח בימי שפות השפטים.
1: How beautiful is that? You know, we we, that was recorded by his wife just months before, his young wife, their new new marriage, just months before he was killed in that battle. You know, we're here to be a light of godliness and inspiration. You know, but instead of sharing that, we share guilt. Guilt. We aren't being a nation of Maccabees. We're being a nation of, you know, forgive the stereotype, a nation of Ashkenazi Jewish grandmothers guilt-tripping the world. You know, how does a Jewish grandma change a light bulb? She says, oh, don't worry about little old me. I'll just sit here in the dark. That's the joke because it's true. And we're just guilting as a country, as a nation. We're guilting the world. It's embarrassing. You know, we can also take responsibility, you know, for our part in treating the situation in Gaza. You know, the Torah tells us that when you conquer the land, you are to banish your enemies or there'll be a thorn in your eyes. The Torah tells us there's no pacifying them that if we're kind to the evil in the end, we'll be evil to the kind. And we can recognize that when we forcefully transferred, actually ethnically cleansed our own people, our own brave, innovative, God-fearing pioneers out of Gaza to surrender it unilaterally to the openly genocidal Hamas, we can recognize that the responsibility for the one-day Holocaust that we experienced October 7th lies directly in our lap, right? We need to own it. There's an entire world out there. There's a world that is yearning for God in the deepest way, and they don't even know it. You know, a world, as the prophet Amos foresaw, in which there would be a hunger in the land, but the hunger would not be for bread, and the thirst would not be for water, but to hear the words of God. And so, my friends, with your blessing, as we move forward, you know, exploring the vision of the future state of Israel and really zooming in, focusing in, I really, um, you know, felt we needed to start with the foundations of it all. The foundation of having the faith and the courage to take responsibility for ourselves, for our nation, for our situation, and also for the entire world. You know, it's it's not a coincidence, I think, that this fellowship fell out in Parshat Mishpatim, where we actually start getting into the laws, into the national societal laws, uh, modes of morality and, and codes of ethical behavior. You know, midvar sheker tirchak, it says, you shall... Distance yourself from uh, falsehood. Falsehood is the antithesis of God. It is the opposite of God. When you speak truth, you're putting your faith in God and letting the cards fall where they may. It says, midvar sheker, tirchak. From words of falsehood, you shall distance yourself. But the sages of Israel say, midvar sheker, if you speak words of falsehood, tirchak, you will be distanced from Hashem. Israel is founded on a foundation of truth and of faith and of responsibility. And I I want to thank all of you uh, in the fellowship, really, for giving me the confidence to explore these uncharted waters um, and, and to continue doing so. I want to continue on this path. I want to thank you for your love and your friendship. And I think sometimes many of you recognize the historic role that this fellowship may be playing in the unfolding story of redemption, I think sometimes even more than we do. And I thank all of you for strengthening us with that. And so as a future, Further foreshadowing of the role the nation of Israel is destined to play in the world, it's my great honor to bless all of you with the blessing that Aaron the High Priest blessed the nation of Israel, and the blessing with which I believe in the great magnificent days to come, Israel will be blessing the whole world. Adonai <speaking in> Adonai <Hebrew> Isa Adonai shalom may god bless you protect you may he shine his light upon you may he to join the land of israel fellowship to attend our live interactive zoom sessions to participate in the fellowship connection q and a events or even just to binge on past sessions click on the link below Or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.